Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Saturday, and I want you to pay close attention to the date. It is Saturday, May the 21st, 2022. All right, May the 21st, 2022, it is currently 9.54 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Let me stress that date again, May the 21st, 2022. Now, that date is significant because in this episode, well, we're going to study a little bit of church history, and the way we're going to do this is we're going to get in our time machine, and we're going to go back not to the future. We're going to go back in time to May the 21st, 1922. It is 2022. We're going to go back to 1922. May the 21st, 1922. Now, if I was in front of my church, and I do this all the time to them, and they usually hate it, I would look at them and I would be like, okay, what significant event happened in church history on May the 21st, 1922. And then I would stop and wait. Now, someone would, someone may throw something out. They, they, someone may throw something out, but they're typically, typically in most churches, whenever you ask a question uh, and you give them a date about something significant happening in church history, most of the time, and I and 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 I'm not I, and I think this is just a fair assessment. You may disagree, but I think in most churches, you're going to get a lot of blank stares and a lot of mm, I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, because I think most Christians don't spend a lot of time studying church history, reading church history, and I guarantee you that most churches don't teach church history, and I think that that is a massive problem. I've been complaining about it and doing everything I can to fight against it pretty much most of my Christian life. I think that we have to learn from the past. I say this all the time. There's lots of people who don't read church history. There's lots of people who don't study church history. But isn't it amazing that when you live, if you know church history and if you read church history and if you study church history, when you hear a Christian speak in the present, and if you know church history, a lot of times you just want to look at them and go, oh, okay, so you've been influenced by this. You've been influenced by this, and they won't even know what you're talking about, which goes to prove a statement that I make all the time. Ignorance of church history does not negate its influence upon you. Ignorance of the past does not negate its influence on the present. Just because people don't know Maybe the controversy between Augustine and Pelagius, just because they don't know that. Maybe if they don't know anything about modalism or Sabellianism, I could go on. I mean, I could go through all kinds of different things that's happened in church history. Just because you don't know about those things doesn't mean that you haven't been influenced in some way, shape, or form by them. So I think that's one of the reasons it's so important to study church history. So today we're going to do a little church history study. We're going to do this in, in, in somewhat of a different way uh, because what we're going to focus on, a lot of times when you go back in church history, you may focus on a person and you get some kind of, you know, the, their background, where were they born, what did they do, what were their accomplishments, what were the big controversies. What we, A lot of times you focus on a person. Sometimes you focus on an event like 
maybe the seven ecumenical councils. Uh, maybe, maybe you deal with the, the documents produced by a council, the anathemas or the decrees or uh, a, a creed that was produced like the Nicene Creed or, or some, you know, the, uh, we could talk about the Athanasian Creed. There's lots of different ways of studying church history. But today what we're going to do is we're just going to go back to May the 21st, 1922. Okay, May the 21st, 1922. I, I'm, I'm thinking May the 21st, 1922 was a Sunday. I probably should have looked that up. I don't know, but I'm just going to imagine that it was a Sunday. Maybe it was. I, I, I it probably was. Well, we're going to go back to May the 21st, 1922. All right. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to sit down and we're going to listen to a sermon that was preached on May the 21st, 1922. Now, obviously, I don't have an audio recording of it, but I have it right here on my Kindle. I have the sermon right here on my Kindle, all right? And, uh, well, we're, we're, we're just going to, I'm going to read it, and uh, we'll, I'm, we're going to do a sermon review. Um, and in a sense... We're gonna re- we're gonna do a sermon review as I read the sermon and then interrupt the sermon to talk about it. But I want you just to imagine it's May the twenty first, nineteen twenty two. Let's imagine you're getting ready to walk into a church and the pastor is going to stand up and preach a sermon entitled "Shall the Fundamentalist Win?" Shall the Fundamentalist Win? Now, in the printed edition that I have of this, and you can find the sermon all over the internet. And the printed copy that I have, it's been placed in some form of a, like a, a book format. They have Shell the Fundamentalist Win or The New Knowledge and the Christian Faith. Shell the Fundamentalist Win, that is the title. You probably want to look for it uh, if you look anywhere online. You can find the sermon all over the place because it's a very famous sermon. It has been said that on May the 21st, 1922, a sermon was preached that divided America. I don't know if it, maybe it divided America at that time. I think we can definitely say on May the 21st, 1922, a sermon was preached that divided Christianity. And so you have to be asking, man, what, what was so significant about this sermon? Because rarely does one sermon have such a profound impact well, not only on a nation, but on, well, Christianity and the future of it. May the 21st, 1922, all right? Shall the fundamentalists win? Here's a little bit of background. There's all kinds of articles today all over the place about it because, well, today is May the 21st, 2022. Here we go. Here's a little bit of a description, all right? On May the 21st, 1922, Harry Emerson Fosdick, fired a shot across the bow of fundamentalist Presbyterians with his sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? It was delivered at First Presbyterian Church in New York City. So now we're going to go back in time. We're going to go back to May the 21st, 1922. We're going to go to First Presbyterian Church in New York City. So so close your eyes and imagine it. You're in New York City, okay? Imagine what it looked like in 1922, all right? We find ourselves on the street corner of First Presbyterian Church in New York City. Well, there it is. There's First Presbyterian Church. We see the church, all right? 
it's May, it's, it's May the 21st, 1922. And we're like, you know what? I, I don't know what else is going on. Let's, let's walk in and let's, let's, let's see what's going on in this church. So we walk in, we find a place to sit and we're sitting there. All right. And then Harry, if I said Henry, Harry Emerson Fosdick walks into the pulpit where he's going to preach a sermon called Shall the Fundamentalist Win? All right. Now, he accuses fundamentalists of being essentially um, liberal and intolerant. Fosdick's minced no words in defending the new modern theology and disputing traditional doctrines like the virgin birth of Christ, the inerrancy of the Bible, and Christ if I can say the word right, substitutionary atonement of on the cross. So now you're going to getting an idea of what's so controversial here. He goes after the fundamentalist, right? Um, he, he, he completely goes after them for being basically intolerant. He minces no words, and he defends a new modern theology, and he disputes traditional doctrines. Here's the doctrines he goes at, he, he's going to dispute. The virgin birth of Christ, the inerrancy of the Bible, and Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross. I mean, when you're going after Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross, you're going after the inerrancy of the Bible, you're going after the virgin birth, you're going after historical Christianity. The sermon is unusual in that regard few Protestant pastors in the early 20s openly stated modernist doctrines to their often more conservative parishioners. So what was going on in the 1920s, you may have pastors who were buying into, quote-unquote, a modern theology, uh, going into to, uh, whole, to, to their modernist doctrines. They may have had modernist doctrines, they may have had modernist theology, but they wouldn't say it from the pulpit in a direct way because they knew that their parishioners were extremely conservative. So they had to do, they had to, they had to try to undermine things in a more subtle way, not in such a direct way. They would have to undermine it or maybe try to, whatever they were going to do, it had to be done through deceit. It had to be done subtly. They had to be quiet about it. But Harry Emerson Fosdick, he stood up on the pulpit and he didn't mince any words. He goes after the fundamentalists. He goes after the, the, the doctrines of Christianity. Again, he's going to go after the virgin birth, the inerrancy of the Bible, Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross. Now, in response, the, uh, the Presbyterian fundamentalist forced Fosdick to resign his pastorate in order to escape a formal trial in 1924. The incident made Fosdick a martyr to the liberal faction of mainline Christianity, but he quickly found a new home at Park Avenue Baptist Church, and he found a new friend in John D. Rockefeller Jr. All right, so this was a, a big deal because this was a direct, like, I'm not holding anything back. I'm not going to come here and be subtle. I'm just going to, in a sense, I'm going to stand here behind the pulpit and I'm going to slap everyone across the face and I'm going to say, no, Christian, it's time for Christianity to change. Here's modern doctrine. Here's modern theology. And here's the old that has to be thrown out. You probably would have left church on May the 21st, 1922, going, what just happened? 
I, I would have loved, I would love to be able to go back in time, not only just to sit there in, like, I would like to sit somewhere in the church where I could watch everyone's facial expressions, but then I would love to be standing outside the church, hopefully hearing the discussions or, or be able to follow people home and listen to how they talked about the sermon. I, I wonder, I, I wonder if they, if they understood the historical significance of what was happening. You know, a lot of times when history is occurring, we don't realize the significance of the history at the moment. It's only later when they write the history books about it or they make the documentary and you're like, whoa, I lived through that. And why didn't I understand the significance of what was going on? It always makes me mad if I, if I was living at a time and I didn't realize something of great significance was occurring. But I don't know if they caught on, but there's the basic, basic information here, again, the, the sermon is called Shall the Fundamentalist Win? It was a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church, New York, May the 21st, 1922. All right? And uh, I'm looking at a picture of the church right here. It looks like a very beautiful building. There's a picture of Harry Fosdick. Okay? Looks like a... Uh, no, I mean, you know, he, he wouldn't look... Oh, no, he's he's dangerous, um, here's a little information about this. This was published this morning. Uh, the Sermon That Divided America. Harry Emerson Fosdick, sh Shall the Fundamentalist Win? This was published May the 21st, 2022. Here's what they have to say. To say that Harry Emerson Fosdick's sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win, ignited the fundamentalist modernist controversy requires a bit of qualification. In truth, the lines had been drawn for at least a decade between 1910. Now, what I'm getting ready to say, what I'm getting ready to say, if if the members of my church were present, what you would hear right when I get ready to read this line, you would hear this. <sighs> Here we go again. Okay, they, they, they may not say that externally, but internally, they'd be like, you've got to be kidding me. You talk about this all the time. I know. In fact, it at my church, there's, there's the pulpit. And behind the pulpit, there's a table. Now, it doesn't look the most professional. But on that table, there's just all kinds of books, right? Because I'm always grabbing a book, referencing a book, whatever. Because if I, yeah. Why? I don't know why. I just, it's just how it works, okay? Probably should move them all. But I constantly have books there. But, there, but if I remove all the other books, there are four books that I will not remove until everyone in my church has read them, all right, okay? And I, I, I yeah, I think I'm just going to make it where I'm going to go to every member of my church each evening and say, I'm going to read a chapter from these books because that, these books play a very important part in this history, all right? So, so 1922, May the 21st, Fosdick preaches the sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? Right now, a lot of people say that that ignites the the fundamentalist modernist controversy, but that would not be a, a, a historically accurate statement. It may be the thing that brings it to everyone's attention, but the battle lines were drawn earlier because between 1910 and 1915, a series of twelve paperback volumes called the Fundamentals had defended everything from the virgin birth to the de deity of Christ um, to the inspiration of scripture against those who sought to undermine the supernatural character of the Christian faith. 
1920, the term fundamentalist was coined by Baptist editor Curtis Lee Laws at the first meeting of the General Conference on Fundamentals to describe someone who held the historical doctrines of Christianity. By 1922, you could say that there was a a very militant, anti-modernist, Protestant evangelicalism had begun to emerge in America. They were militant, they were anti-modernist, they were Protestant, and I guess technically they would have referred to themselves as evangelicals, or what they were going to be called fundamentalist. Now, fundamentalist at that time did not have all of the baggage that we may associate with it, where it's, you know, whatever you may associate with that word. The fundamentalists were the people who stood for the fundamentals of the faith, and those fundamentals were outlined clearly and what was those 12 paperback volumes, which now I think are, there's a four, I have the four volume uh, hardback set that I try to tell everyone in my church that they should read. Not everyone is, trust me, I, it, people are not very prone to want to read them. I don't know why, but they should, because I think this is such a, a those books are such a key moment in church history, because you had the modern, you had the higher criticism coming in from Europe. You had this modernist idea beginning to emerge. And the fundamentalists was like, we're going to fight it. And you can look at that and go, here's what some, what they thought the fundamentals of the faith were in the early 1900s. All right. Now I would argue that by 1910, there should have been another fundamental, fundamental, uh, another fundamental that was labeled. And that was the rejection and the complete condemnation of the emerging uh, charismatic movement, but that that gets us into a whole different study of church history. All right, so um, let's see here. Where else do we want to go here? This uh, okay. So um, so this militant anti-modernist Protestant evangelicalism had already emerged in America, according to Fosdick's bi- biographer. The sermon was not a stone dropped into denom- denominational waters that would otherwise have remained calm. In some sense. Fosdick did not create the fundamentalist movement. He just gave it a push. So like he didn't necessarily create it, but he, he, this becomes a lightning rod. Boom. And then this is like, okay, we've got, we've got a problem here because now here's a preacher standing behind the pulpit, loud and proud, basically proclaiming utter heresy. But here's the thing that seems to make it so crazy. Um, and I think this is important. Probably the most shocking thing, um, in fact, I'll, I'll read this, I'll, I'll direct quote. The most shocking aspect of Fosdick's sermon was not simply the heresy, but here's the key. The assumption that the heresy, uh, but the assumption that heresy or the acceptance of heresy was the new orthodoxy. So what makes it so shocking is that he basically was like, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not preaching heresy. I'm preaching the new orthodoxy. I'm preaching the truth, and it's going to be accepted. And if you try to fight against it, fight against it, it's almost like you're you're fighting a losing battle. That's what kind of made it so. Um, that kind of makes it so shocking. In fact, he goes on to say, "I do not believe for one moment that the fundamentalists are going to succeed." Fosdick declared triumphantly. The fundamentalist defeat was inevitable, according to Fosdick. He thought, look, it's it's over. It's finished. You're going to lose. So this was bold. This was loud. 
This would have been scandalous, shocking, and it happened on May the 21st, 1922. So uh, that's 20 minutes of getting us the historical context. I know I should have called this part one, but ready. Now, there's articles all over the place. If, if you, there, There's a lot of information about this sermon today. Uh, I, w- I would probably say the gospelcoalition.org. That's the gospelcoalition.org, whether you, I know people, some people hate them and condemn them, but the gospelcoalition.org has some good information this morning in regards to this famous sermon preached on May the 21st, 1922. So are you ready? So back to closing your eyes. Here we are. We're in the pew. Do you feel the pew? Okay. I'm sitting in a chair, but we're sitting in a pew. Okay, because you know, 1922, they didn't have stadium seating yet, right? They didn't have they didn't have stage lighting. Okay, so here we are. We're in a pew, all right. Everyone's probably dressed really nice. There we go, big Presbyterian church, New York City, and it, it was a big church from the drawing that I just looked at of it. Bosdick walks to the pulpit. I don't know. I don't know how his voice sounded. I don't know his accent, but we're going to go with the copy that I have here. Are you ready? Okay, and I'm going to verify something because I would hate to be reading from one thing that's not an accurate representation of the sermon. Let me see here. I believe, yes. Yeah, okay, I've I've got the, I want to make sure because I I went to the Presbyterian Historical Society to look at a kind of a copy of it because I wanted to compare it to the edition I have here because I because I, I didn't have I haven't gone through like okay verify everything so I think that what I have in from in front of me is an accurate accurate uh, copy of what was preached on May the 21st 1922 if there's any variation here I may not catch it and I apologize so please go look up the copy of the sermon everywhere. If for some reason you have a copy of the sermon and you're listening along with me this morning, if you're using the Spreaker app, please jump into the chat and let me know, or you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, or if you're listening to me on some other platform, you can say, wait, 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 that line is different than what I have in my copy, all right? Because we, we want we will, we want to fairly, look, this is true, whenever you're dealing with any kind of theological, doctrinal, hermeneutical controversy, you always want to fairly represent the other side. That's why whenever I review sermons, I don't just take clips. I review the entire thing because I want the pastor to have, I want his entire perspective to be clearly heard, even if I think it's completely heretical, so that when our criticism will be based off an accurate understanding and not a misunderstanding or or a fake understanding or misinformation or creating a straw man. All right, so here we go. May the 21st. 2022, Harry Emerson Fosdick. Here we go. He walks to the pulpit. He opens the sermon with the following words. This morning, we are to think of the fundamentalist controversy which threatens to divide the American churches as though already they were not sufficiently split and riven. Stop right here. Now, according to Fosdick, he strongly believes. Now, in some ways, I don't want to interrupt too much, but in other ways, I feel like I'm going to have to. All right. Um, He feels that the fundamentalist controversy is threatening to divide the American church more than they were had already been divided. Now, it's just it's it's crazy to hear that 
1922, there's already, again, from the pulpit, an acknowledgement, and you can almost hear a frustration and a complaint that the church is so divided. The church has just has constantly been divided, constantly. And well, that, well, there's a lot we could talk about there, but it, it, yeah, it should bother everyone. Now, let me read this again. This morning, we are to think of the fundamentalist controversy which threatens to divide the American churches as though already they were not sufficiently split and riven. A scene suggestive for our thought is depicted in the fifth chapter of the book of Acts, where the Jewish leaders held before them Peter and other of the apostles because they had been preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Moreover, the Jewish leaders proposed proposed to slay them when in opposition, now this is very important, from what I have read, about the sermon and what I know from study of church history. He's getting ready to mention a name here that seems to be key to his sermon. All right? Let's see. Does this sound familiar to you? Does this sound familiar to you? Here we go. I'm just going to play it just just to, to add a little drama here. Here we go. Gamaliel. Does that name sound familiar to you? Gamaliel. 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 Do you know that name in Acts chapter 5? Gamaliel. This seems to be the, the, the name that's going to be central to his sermon. According to what I have read, is Gamaliel, I don't know, is, does he become the hero of the story? What is he going to do with this individual, Gamaliel? So let's, let's go through this again. This morning, we are to think of the fundamentalist controversy which threatens to divide the American churches as though as already they were not sufficiently split and riven. A scene suggestive for our thought is depicted in the fifth chapter of the book of Acts where the Jewish leaders held before them Peter and other of the apostles because they had been preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Moreover, the Jewish leaders proposed to slay them when in opposition, Gamaliel speaks, and then he quotes, Refrain from these men and let them alone, for if this counsel or this work be of men, it will be overthrown, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, lest happily you be fond even to be fighting against God. Hmm. Now, we, we could talk about Gamaliel. So is it, is Fosdick. Now I'm just asking a question. I'm getting you to think. I want you to start analyzing this. Is, is Fosdick going to say, hey, look, this new modern theology, this new modern doctrine, don't fight against it, all right? Because and, and I'm quoting the words of again, he quotes from Acts 5. Gamaliel speaks, refrain from these men and let them alone. In other words, leave the people teaching the modern doctrine, uh, the modernist ideas alone. Leave them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them lest you find even to be, at least, least, um, lest happily ye be uh, found even to be fighting against God. Is he going to basically go, hey, 
the modernist doctrine, the modern idea. Don't fight against it. Just wait and see. And if it's of men, it will be overthrown. And if it's of God, do you want to be found fighting against God? Is that, is that the way he's going to approach this? Let's continue. Back to the sermon, Fosdick, May 21st, 1922. Already all of us must have heard about the people who called themselves the fundamentalist. Their apparent intention is to drive out of the evangelical churches men and women of liberal opinions. I speak the, speak of them the more freely because there are no two denominations more affected by them than the Baptist and the Presbyterian. We should not identify the fundamentalist with the conservatives. All fundamentalists are conservatives, but not all conservatives are fundamentalist. The best conservatives can often give lessons to the liberals and true liberality of spirit, but the fundamentalist program is essentially illiberal and intolerant. So illiberal and intolerant. I think we read something where they said that he refers to the the fundamentalist as liberal and intolerant, which caught me off guard when I read this this morning. I think that was a typo. The sermon clearly has essentially illiberal and and and, and intolerant, and that seems to be a, obviously the more accurate description. When I read that earlier, I was like, "That doesn't seem to make sense," but I I just went with it, hoping the sermon would clarify which the sermon has. So, conservatives. Let me read this again. So he thinks that for, for many conservatives, they can give lessons to the to liberals about true liberality of spirit. That sometimes conservatives, in his mind, could really teach liberals about what true libera- liberality of spirit is. But when it comes to the fundamentalist, they are illiberal and intolerant. So he sees the fundamentalist as being illiberal and intolerant. And, well, he's, he's, he's obviously going to condemn that. The fundamentalists see... And they see truly that in this last generation, there have been a strange new movement in Christian thought. A great mass of new knowledge has come into man's possession. New knowledge about the physical universe, its origin, its forces, its laws. New knowledge about human history, and in particular, the way in which the ancient peoples used to think in matters of religion and the methods by which they phrase and explain their their spiritual experiences and new knowledge also about other religions and the strangely similar ways in which men's faith and religious practices have developed everywhere. Now, I'll stop right here. So, here's the fundamentalist. Now, I'm not going to say this is an, a, a completely accurate description of what our... our I'm, I'm just going to try to explain what Fosdick is trying to say. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm going to be 100% accurate, but it seems to me what he is saying. Here's the fundamentalist, and if, and if you study the fundamentalist movement and the fundamentals, all of that, that time period, uh, like the, uh, the Niagara Creed, which we spent, what, almost a year going through the Niagara Creed, if, if you go study some of those documents— you think you can get the idea that the fundamentalists are like, it is the Bible, it is the word of God, that's what we preach, that's what we're going to stand on. You may come up with your higher criticism, your theories, your new knowledge, but if that new knowledge goes against the, the you know, correct understanding of scripture, we reject the new knowledge 
for the word of God. So in other words, here's new knowledge. Here's the word of God. The fundamentalist is like, I'm picking the word of God. I don't care if it makes me look stupid. I don't care if it makes me look foolish. I don't care if it goes against all of the new knowledge. I'm sticking with the word of God. Fosdick is saying, wait, 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 wait. We can't forget this. new. Look at all of this new knowledge. We have to now, in a sense, look to scripture through the lens of the new knowledge. The fundamentalist was like, no, I'll look at the new knowledge through the lens of scripture, right? I'm going to look. And if the lens of scripture says, if the scripture disagrees with the new knowledge, I throw out the new knowledge. The, what was happening at that time with the modernists and the higher criticism, no, we're going to take the new knowledge and we're going to look to the scriptures. And if the scriptures disagree with the new knowledge, we're going to change the scriptures. And you know, a lot of that new knowledge would have been things like evolution and a lot of different things along those lines. Maybe higher criticism, questioning authorship of certain books of the Bible, questioning the, the inerrancy of scripture and just... Uh, the historical accuracy of scripture, uh, the reliability of the manuscripts. It's going it, to, I mean, all of that kind of thing was happening at this time. All right. So he goes on to say, now there are multitudes of reverent Christians who have been unable to keep this new knowledge in the compartment of their minds and the Christian faith in another. So he says, there's, there's all these reverent Christians and they're unable to say, here's the new knowledge I'm going to put this in this compartment. Here's my Christian faith. I'm going to put it in the other compartment and almost try to keep them separate. He said that there are multitudes of reverent Christians who've been unable to do this. They're, they're just, they can't, they can't do this. They have been sure that all the truth comes from the one God and his revelation. Now stop right here. He says there's reverent Christians and they see that all of this new knowledge, it comes from God as well. They believe this new knowledge is, and somehow it comes from God, and it's a part of God's revelation, where the fundamentalists are like, no, 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 no. The Bible is God's revelation. And if any knowledge goes against the Bible, we throw it out. We look at the knowledge through the scriptures. And Fosdick is is creating, no, all of this new knowledge, it comes from God, and it may help us clarify or fix the Bible almost in some ways, the new knowledge becomes almost an advanced revelation, almost. I'm not saying they would use those words, but you really kind of get this dynamic beginning to form here, which is being outlined in this sermon. All right, here we go. Not Now, uh, I'm going to read this again. They have been sure that all truth comes from one God and, and, and is his revelation. Not, therefore from irreverence or caprice or destructive zeal, but for the sake of intellectual and spiritual integrity, that they might really love the Lord their God, not only with all their heart and soul and strength, but with all their mind. They have been trying to see this new knowledge in terms of the Christian faith and to see the Christian faith in terms of this new knowledge. All right, so he's almost arguing that the spiritual people are the one, because we're supposed to love God with all of our mind. We're supposed to love God of all of our mind. We've got to take this knowledge, and we now have to look at the Christian faith in light of this new knowledge, where, again, the fundamentalist was like, no, the faith was once delivered to the saints. We look at the new knowledge in light of our, through, uh, through the lens of our faith, and if it disagrees with the faith once delivered, we throw out the new knowledge. 
I mean, you're, you're, this is a radical, this is, this is creating two radical different approaches to Christianity. And this is happening within the church. This is happening within the church. Here we go. Doubtless, they have made many mistakes. Doubtless, there have been among them reckless radicals gifted with intellectual ingenuity, but lacking spiritual death. Yet the enterprise itself seems to them indispensable to the Christian church. The new knowledge and the old faith cannot be left antagonistic or even, uh, uh, you know, basically at, at odds with one another as though a man on Saturday could use one set of regulative ideas for his life and on Sunday could change gear to another altogether. In other words, you can't keep these separate. You can't keep these antagonistic. Fosdick believes that the new knowledge and the old faith must be brought together and they have to work somehow. You can't just keep them separate. You can't say, well, I'm going to use the new knowledge in a sense Monday through Saturday and when I come to church on Sunday, I pick up the old faith. All right. I, I, I can see where he's going here. We must be able to think our modern life clear, though through, yeah, he says through, in Christian terms. I, I would thought though in Christian terms, but we must be able to think our modern life clear through. Okay, that's how he, he wants us to understand this. So let me read this again. We must be able to think our modern life clear through in Christian terms. And to do that, we must also be able to think our Christian faith clear through in modern terms. So we have to take our modern life, right? Think of it clear through in Christian terms, but we must be able to think our Christian faith clear through in modern terms. So the modern and the old, the modern knowledge and the scriptures, they got to be brought together and they got to work. We, we, we can't keep these ideas antagonistic. And the fundamentalists are like those modern ideas are antagonistic to the Bible and we will condemn them and we will not go along with it. There is nothing new about the situation. It has happened again and again in history. As, for example, when the stationary earth suddenly began to move and the universe that had been centered in this planet was centered in the sun around which the planets whirled. Now, there, there is true. Now, this is an, a very good point. There's times where our understanding of the universe or of many things, we thought something was one way only to find out that we were completely wrong. Now, the, no one can deny that that's an actual historical fact that our understanding was one way and then new information comes and changes it. The question is, when new knowledge arises that goes against the Bible, do we throw out the Bible in favor of the new knowledge or do we stick with the Bible against the new knowledge? That's what we have to consider. I can, I quote again, or back to the sermon, Again, preached May 21st, 20, uh, 1922. Here we go. Whenever such a situation has arisen, there has been only one way out. The new knowledge and the old faith had to be blended in a new combination. Now, the people in this generation who are trying to do this are the liberals, and the fundamentalists are out on a campaign to shut against them the doors 
of the Christian fellowship, shall they be allowed to succeed? He's like, so the fundamentalists are like, no, we're going to shut the doors. This is not going to happen. And if you're going to embrace this new knowledge, we're, we're basically, we're not going to have fellowship with you. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to leave your seminaries. We're going to, we're going to, we'll go create a, we'll leave your denominations. We'll create independent churches. We'll create Bible institutes that are not part of your seminaries trying to merge these two concepts together. It is interesting to note where the fundamentalists are driving in their stakes to mark out the deadline of doctrine around the church, across which no one is to pass except on terms of agreement. So he's like, okay, it's interesting to look at what the fundamentalists are doing because in a sense they're out there driving in their stakes, right? Here they are. They got their stakes and they're, they're, they're driving them into the ground. Don't cross this line. This is non-negotiable. Don't cross this line. And Fosdick is saying, hey, it's kind of interesting to see where they're, where they're, they're driving in these stakes. They insist that we must all believe in the historicity of certain special miracles, preeminently the virgin birth of our Lord. So they're, they're like the fundamentalists are out there saying, you've got to believe in the virgin birth, the historical accuracy of, of special miracles, but most importantly, the virgin birth of, of our Lord. So Fosdick is saying, A, the virgin birth of our Lord doesn't fit with modern knowledge. So the fundamentalists are like, you have to believe in it. Fosdick is like, you don't. The fundamentalists are saying, but you do. See, these two sides are completely opposite of one another. This is going on inside the church. This is all the way back in 1922. All right, here we go. So number one, the, the, the virgin birth. Number two, that we must believe in a special theory of inspiration, that the original documents of the scripture, which of course we no longer possess, were inherently dictated to men a good deal as a man might dictate to a stenographer. That we must, so stop right there. So he's kind of, now he's, he's going after kind of a dictation theory of inspiration. I don't know if he's creating a straw man there, but he's definitely attacking the basic idea. And now we can get into the different views of inspiration. There's the dictation theory. Many people reject it. But the idea is that the fundamentalists are like, this is the inerrant word of God. This, this is the word of God. I'm holding up my Bible in my hand. This is the word of God. And he's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, we don't have the, the, the original documents. How inerrant do we believe what we have today? How much can it be trusted? How dogmatically do we have to hold on to what it says? Now, I think it's interesting because in some, in some ways he's going after the inspiration of scripture, but he started his sermon by making a reference to Acts 5. So I guess he's believing that's historically accurate. Why would you even reference Acts 5? So he believes Acts 5 is historically accurate, but the story of the virgin birth, not historically accurate? Okay, so I'm already, there's already some logical fallacies starting to form here in his sermon, but that's okay, all right? Uh, so he, he goes after the virgin birth. He's going after the inspiration of Scripture, all right? Um, and that we must believe in a special theory of the atonement, that the blood of our Lord shed in a substitutionary death placates an alienated deity and makes possible welcome for the returning sinner. So uh, he's saying the substitutionary, the substitutionary atonement idea 
The, the fundamentalists say we have to believe. Clearly, Fosdick is saying we don't. So according to Fosdick, you don't have to believe in the virgin birth. You don't have to believe in the inerrancy of scripture. And you don't have to believe in the substitutionary atonement. And, and that a new Christianity is going to emerge that can reject these things based off modern knowledge. And the fundamentalists are like, you're out of your mind. You're a heretic. Okay, but he's going to go up that the second coming of our Lord upon the clouds of heaven to set up a, a millennium here as the only way in which God can bring history to a worthy end. Such are some of the stakes which are being driven to mark a deadline of doctrine around the church. He does not like the physical second coming and the idea of a millennial kingdom. And then if you get into, uh, we could go back to the Niagara Creed. We, uh, we could go back to the, uh, the, the Niagara Bible Conference. And some of these ideas were being very much promoted by the fundamentalist as things we have to take a stand on and we have to fight on. Some people listening may say, well, you don't have to believe in a, a millennial uh, kingdom, but I think we would all have to acknowledge. Now, again, he, he quotes Acts 5. Remember, he quoted Acts 5. Okay, well, okay, if we just go to Acts, the book of Acts, what about this? See, the only problem with these views sometimes is they sound so sophisticated and so intellectual, but there's a there's always a logical fallacy because they want to throw out, in a sense, that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, but then they want to quote scripture when they want to quote it, but then reject other parts of scripture. Because look at this. Acts chapter 1, verse 9, and when they had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, speaking of Jesus, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Verse 11, Acts 1, 11, which, which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you in heaven, shall come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. That's in the book of Acts. So if Acts 5 is historically accurate, then isn't Acts 1 historically accurate? So when they said Jesus was going to come back in like manner as he ascended, is that not going to happen? See, these are questions we should ask. They go on to say, if a man... Is a genuine liberal, his primary protest is not against holding these opinions, although he may well protest against their being considered the fundamentals of Christianity. This is a free country, and anybody has a right to hold these opinions or any others if he is sincerely convinced of them. The question is, has anybody a right to deny the Christian name to those who differ with him on such points and to shut against them the doors of the Christian fellowship. So here's what Fosdick is saying. Hey, you can hold any opinion you want. It's perfectly okay. It's a free country. You can believe in the inerrancy of scripture. You can believe in the virgin birth. You can believe in the substitutionary atonement. You can believe in the physical return of Christ to set up a millennial kingdom. Great. You have the freedom to do so. But can you make those the fundamentals of the faith, and then say someone else who doesn't hold those opinions are not a Christian. In other words, who gets to define what Christianity is or isn't, and who can and, and, and say that you have to hold to these things to be a part of quote-unquote Christian fellowship? Now, 
I find it interesting that in May 21st, uh, 1922, Fosdick is making this argument almost like, how dare people define Christianity as being this way? Uh, Go back and study the uh, seven ecumenical councils early on in church history, going back to the Council of Nicaea. What do they say? This is Christianity. If you reject this, you are anathema. It's anathema. All the councils do this. You have to hold to this or it's anathema. You have to hold to this or you are anathema. You have to hold to this or you. Christianity had been defining what Christianity is versus what Christianity isn't throughout the entire history of Christianity. So it's like, you know, I, I just can't, it's, it's shocking that these fundamentalists would say, here's the way it is. That's the way Christianity has been working, right? Wasn't the Catholic Church, this is Catholicism. Luther, you're wrong. You have to repent. Luther's like, no, I'm not wrong. You're wrong. You need to repent. I, I mean, and then other people are like, no, Luther, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. People have been trying to define what it is for 2,000 years. So it shouldn't have come as a shock that in 1922, the same thing was occurring. But he doesn't like that. He says the fundamentalists say that this must be done in this country and on the foreign field that they're trying to do it. They have actually endeavored to put on the statute books of a whole state binding laws against teaching modern biology. If they had their way within the church, that they would set up in Protestantism a doctrinal tribunal more rigid than the popes. Now, this... This brings up a lot of things, and this is where, in some cases, I disagree with the fundamentalists. The fundamentalists do love, and they were trying to do it in 1922, create laws that you can't teach this, and you can't teach that, you can't teach this, because we want to force everyone to a fundamentalist understanding of Christianity. I cannot stand when Christianity wants to pass law trying to tell the world what they can and cannot teach. That drives me crazy. No, teach what you want to teach in the church. Our job is not to force Christian views upon the unregenerate. We're there to preach the gospel to the unregenerate, then teach them to obey all. We get it all wrong. We want to go out there and say, no, you can only teach what we approve of. You can only listen to what we tell you to listen to. And I I can't stand when Christians want to basically try to take over and control society through legislation, judicial system, laws, bills, protests, boycotts, censorship. That's not the way it's supposed to work, but clearly it was going on at that time. And that if it was up to them, Protestantism would create a doctrinal tribunal more rigid than the popes, which is somewhat interesting. Protestantism was birthed out of the idea that, no, the church can't tell us what to believe. The church can't tell us what to do. You're wrong. Okay, then Protestants turn around and like, hey, you have to believe what we tell you to believe or you are gone. And, and so in some cases, Protestantism never really sees the kind of the logical breakdown there. You reject the church being in charge. Now you're in charge and you tell everyone that they have to believe what you believe or you're going to excommunicate them or you're going to t- condemn them. Well, isn't that what Luther was fighting against? Fosdick is saying, hey, everyone should be able to hold their own opinions. Now, everyone should be able to hold their own opinions. I want everyone to have complete freedom to believe whatever they want. So I don't want a doctrinal tribunal. But at the same time, not all opinions are right. So there is truth and there is error. Fosdick seems to say that all opinions somehow can be equally held and we should all just be able to hold hands and get along. But it doesn't work that way because we're making truth claims, eternal truth claims. 
Truth claims supposedly based off the teaching of God's word. So we're going to have to make some kind of distinction here. He goes on to say, we're going to run out of time. And such an hour, delicate and dangerous, and such an hour, delicate and dangerous, when feelings are bound to run high, I plead this morning the cause of magnanimity and liberality and tolerance of spirit. All right? Um, a magnanimity and liberality and tolerance of spirit. I'll make sure I read that correctly. All right, so he wants, what he's saying, he's right, right now, feelings are high, emotions are high. What I want us is to be tolerant. I want, want us to show liberality, right? I want, us, I want us to show this kind of attitude. Now, the only problem is you, you can't be tolerant to false doctrine, though. Sometimes false doctrine loves to scream tolerance because they don't want to be condemned. But that you can't always hide behind that. He goes on to say, I would, if I could reach their ears, say to the fundamentalist about the liberals, what Gamaliel said to the Jews. See, I knew that's the direction he was going to go. So now, now he's going to go to Acts 5. Now remember, now he's going to quote Acts 5 like it was actual historical fact. We know Gamaliel said these words. We know it. We, we know that he said this. And he's going, and so here's what he wants to say to the fundamentalist, right? And I'm, I'm reading it from, from the, the sermon text, all right? Because I don't, I don't want to take time to look this up right now because we're almost out of time. Here we go. Refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, ye will not be able to overthrow them, lest happily you be found even to be fighting against God. I think I think I read this a couple of times, lest you be fond, but no, lest you be found even to be fighting against God. All right, so I apologize if I misread that the first time. That we may be entirely candid and concrete and may not lose ourselves in any fog or of generalities. Let us this morning take two or three of these fundamentalist items and see with reference to them what the situation is in the Christian churches. Too often we preachers have failed to talk frankly enough about the differences of opinion which exist among evangelical Christians, although everybody knows that they are there. Let us face this morning some of the differences of opinion which with which somehow we must deal. Now, this is where I guess this makes this sermon somewhat shocking. Fosdick even acknowledges, hey, we know that there's this division. We know there's difference of opinions. We know this, but he's going to step up and go, let's talk about it. And basically what he is saying so far is, hey, you fundamentalists, you don't have the right to define Christianity. Christianity, it, we, we, should, we should be able to hold to whatever opinions we want, right? I can reject a substitutionary atonement. I can reject the virgin birth. I can reject the inerrancy of scripture, and I can reject the physical return of Jesus Christ, and I should be considered a Christian. And you can believe all those things, and you should be considered a Christian. So we should all just get along. But, I mean, you're making literally, like, completely different dogmatic theological claims. Here we go. We may well begin with the vexed and mooted question of the virgin birth of our Lord. I know people in the Christian churches, ministers and missionaries, laymen, 
devoted lovers of the Lord and servants of the gospel, who alike, as they are in their personal devotion to the master, hold quite different points of view about a matter like the virgin birth. So what he's going to do here, he's going to start with, you know, making this kind of argument. Hey, I know these people who are so, they love God. They are devoted to him. They are so spiritual. They are so much like Jesus. And they don't believe in the virgin birth. So the argument is is like, hey, if they can be so godly and spiritual, they can have such a high level of piety, even though they don't believe in the virgin birth, then obviously you can't claim that you have to believe in the virgin birth. It's kind of a very subtle way of like, hey, if these people seem to be so spiritual, then what they believe seems to be irrelevant. And it doesn't work that way. All right. But here we go. Here, for example, is one point of view that the virgin birth is to be accepted as historical fact. It actually happened. There was no other way for a personality like the master to come into this world except by a special biological miracle. That is one point of view. And many are the gracious and beautiful souls who hold it. But side by side with them in the evangelical churches is a group of equally loyal and reverent people who would say that the virgin birth is not to be accepted as an historical fact. So far from thinking that they have given up anything vital in the New Testament's attitude towards Jesus, these Christians remember that the two men who contributed most of the church's thought of the divine meeting of the Christ were Paul and John, who who never even distinctly alluded to the virgin birth. So he's going to be like, hey, wait a minute, though. John and Paul, they never distinctly alluded to the virgin birth. So then why then why do we have to believe it? That's kind of a, a weak argument there, there, but okay. Here in the Christian churches are these two groups of people, and the question which the fundamentalists raise is this: shall one of them throw out the other? Shall one of them throw the other out? Has intolerance any contribution to make to this situation? Will it persuade anyone of anything? It is not the Christian church is not the Christian church large enough to hold within her hospitable fellowship. Uh, let me read this again. Um, is not the Christian church large enough to hold within her hospitable fellowship people who differ on points like this and agree to differ until the fuller truth be manifested? The fundamentalists say not. They say the liberals must go. Well, if the fundamentalists should succeed, then out of the Christian church would go some of the best Christian life and consecration of this generation. Multitudes of men and women, devout and reverent Christians who need the church and whom the church needs. So we'll stop right there. His argument is... you. Now, he's not making an argument about why. His argument is not even, see, here's what's wrong with the doctrine of the virgin birth. Here's why it's not true. Here's the text that proves it's not true. Here's historical evidence. Now, what his argument right now is, hey, can't we all just believe what we want to believe and we should all just be able to get along? Isn't the church big enough for those who believe in the virgin birth and those who don't? His argument is we should just, we should just, tolerance. Tolerance is his plea here. Now, it sounds so spiritual. It sounds so good, but 
Either the virgin birth is true or it is not. Either it's a historical fact or it is not. It's not like you can just have different opinions on it. It's either a fact or it isn't a fact. And then if it isn't a fact, then we have to go to, well, why is it recorded in the Bible the way? Then you say, well, then that brings in questions of hermeneutics. Remember, he quoted Acts 5 as being historical fact. Right? He, he, he goes to Acts chapter 5, and he's like, look, look at uh, how this situation played out. He, he goes directly to it, quotes it. Hey, look at, look at Gamaliel, Gamaliel. Look at how he handled the situation. Or Gamaliel, if I can say his name correctly. Gamaliel, look at how he handled the situation. Right? So, so he's, going to, he's going to approach this situation in the same way. Well, the, the, what would make... Why would we want to approach it the same way unless Gamaliel was a real person who said those real words in a real historical setting? Well, if that's historically true, then is Acts 1 historically true? Is Matthew and Luke historically true? Why is it that one part's historically? See, that's the problem I would have. All right, we'll have to stop. I'm sorry, we got to leave. We got to leave May uh, the 21st, 2020, or... May the 21st, 1922, we got to leave it and we got to come back to May the 21st, 2022. I'm sorry. I know you were, you're getting comfortable in that pew. You're probably starting to think, man, 1922 is pretty cool. You're probably looking around going, oh, I like the clothes. And maybe you can't wait to get outside and see all the world of, 19, of 1922. But I'm sorry, we have to come back to 2022. And you know what you find in 2022? The church is just as divided. Still arguing, still debating. And as in a roundabout way, what Fosdick was trying to do is saying, hey, who says we have to define Christianity that way? And I think Christianity is under attack in 2022, and people are trying to redefine it in 2022. And there are people trying to redefine it from the liberal, progressive, woke side. But there's people redefining Christianity from the conservative Republican right side. The church is being, Christianity is being redefined by politics in 2022, where in 1922, in 1922, 192022, in 1922, Christianity was being redefined along theological lines. You see what's changed? 1922, the issue was theology. In 2022, the church, Christianity is being redefined along political ideological lines. That's how bad things have become. All right. You can email me your thoughts to newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. We'll stop right there. Well, we definitely have to pick this up. We have, uh, according to my Kindle, we're at 41%. And so well, we'll definitely have to do a part two here. All right. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll back it up, I think, right there. Or see, did I back it up? Yeah, I think we'll go. I'll go we'll go right there. All right. Thanks for listening. Newsif at yahoo.com. We'll be back here later to work on this some more. All right, thanks for listening. God bless.